This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Right On, showcasing the work and lives of Otago and Southland writers. Tune in for news and interviews with your local writers on the second Wednesday of every month from noon to one and repeated the following Sunday at 11am. The university bookshop is evil because it tempts me so with its otherworldly, picture-perfect, just-smell-those-books-and-breathe atmosphere, with its staff who entice me with, Oh, look, have you read this? Or have you seen that? And we know you need this. With its cruelly situated right at the front so you trip over at New Zealand new releases table. And worst of all, worst of all, with the irresistible treasures in Book Lovers Corner, the university bookshop is evil. You have been warned. Good afternoon and welcome. You're listening to Otago Access Radio and Right On with Vanda Simon, which is the show of the Otago Southland branch of the New Zealand Society of Authors and sponsored by that great team at the University Bookshop. Then you get to listen in for the next hour to that wonderful world of books. Now, this afternoon, my first guest in the studio is Saskia Leek, and Saskia has recently just done and published a book called Bordering on Miraculous, and a lovely collaboration with Dunedin poet Lindley Edmeads. Saskia, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks for having me. Now, Bordering on Miraculous is part of the Korero series of books, which is published by Massey University Press, and I love that they describe them as like picture books for adults, which I thought was really cool. So how did you and Lindley actually get involved in this project in the first place? Um, well, I was initially approached by Lord Lloyd-Jones, who's the, um, the sort of over the editor of the whole series. Um, and initially I was paired with Bill Manhire, um, and we started actually a quite a long time ago, like before the first COVID lockdown, and um, sort of got off to quite a slow start, and then COVID hit, and after COVID, um, Bill decided he had too many other commitments and pulled out, so... Um, I put my hand up and said, please, can I still do it? And um, suggested Lindley might be somebody good to work with. So So that's lovely. You're obviously excited by this whole idea of a a collaboration process. Yeah, quite an unusual kind of a um, Mm. thing to be offered. So, yeah, Mm. I was very keen. And and how did did you know Lindley? Um, I guess uh, mutual friends and... I don't, we were actually in a book club together at one stage, and yeah, just um, so I didn't know her exceptionally well, but mm. I did know her work, and yeah, we definitely got to know each other better through this process as well. Yeah, because there's like in New Zealand, there's zero degrees of separation, really, isn't yes, there? Yes, that's true. Yep. You're either related to somebody, or <laughs> you've been in a group or lived down the street from them, which is really quite funny. Now, um, one of the interesting things about this book, you know, when we think about the relationships between writers and illustrators, uh, we think in terms of children's picture books and stuff like that, where it's very, the writer provides the words, the illustrator then does the illustrations to that. But this was not that kind of a project, was it? How did that all work? it was way more um, back and forth than that. And in fact, I, I... it made me think that I could never be an il- illustrator. I'm just, um, I, yeah, <laughs> um, I, yeah, I found it. I mean, I th- think with Bill, Bill's work was um, very much more narrative driven, and um, yeah, I found that quite hard to 
to key into um, in some ways, you know, just the, the images were so particular. Whereas with Lindley, I think um, there was quite a lot of space around everything. So um, I think it was quite easy for both of us to work together. So did you have, uh, did you start with a discussion or did both of you have some prior work that you already popped on the table? Um, well, I'd started with, um, when I was working with Bill, I was trying to work out a way of uh, working more quickly than I usually do. Um, usually my, if I'm painting, paintings take quite a long time and I might do, you know, 15 paintings a year or so and there were meant to be 45 illustrations so (laughs) yeah Um, so I I was trying to work out a quick way of working and I um, decided that I would do these monoprints which um, is just like a really quick uh, process and way of making a lot of work. So from Um, from a monoprint then the the name suggests you only take like one print from? One print yeah so just very basic like just painting on a pane of glass and mm. kind of rolling over the top of it, which um, kind of throws in some chance elements and um, brings out the kind of brushiness of the of the painting. And um, yeah, so I had, a, you know, I had a stack of those um, that I could give Lindley. Uh, so we sort of started from there. Mm. Uh, also, Lloyd had provided some kind of starting kind of phrases one of which was uh, something to do with miracles. It was a little bit longer than just miracles, mm. more specific. But we we sort of thought that that might be the one to work with, so we we went from there. Yeah. And I love that you know it is you know bordering on the miraculous, but it's about just everyday stuff. Um, yeah. Somehow that's where we ended up. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, like Lindley had a uh, quite a new baby and. You know, of course, that's all that everyday stuff is fairly miraculous. So, mm. so with this, this process, then, if you two were just uh, sitting and bouncing things back and forth, did you find that um, this helped not overthink everything? Did you just go with the flow and go on yeah, the fly? Yeah, it was. Yeah, I mean, both of us said it was much easier to work together than just by us, you know, on our own individual projects. Sort of took the pressure off a bit. Yeah. So you didn't, because one of the things I was really curious about, and I, no, I, I haven't personally uh, done a collaboration with someone else, was whether having a sense of responsibility to another fellow artist or someone you're working with, whether that would be uh, liberating or a bit stifling. How, how was that for you and for Lindley? Um, yeah, well, I think, you know, like Lindley, Lindley really took on the um, uh, the working in a quick way <laughs> Uh, angle and so um, yeah for both of us the way we were working the process was was quite different and that became really important to what we produced and yeah and I suppose for Lindley too again being a, a young mum with a, a, yeah, a child to look yes. after as well working quickly and kind of on the fly would exactly have been a, a I mean she way. said it was sort of the perfect project for her to mm. be able to do while she was on, you know, yeah. Get your brain back into that space. And could just grab moments here and there, yeah. And one of the things, um, looking through the the, the illustrations and things like that, you know, you mentioned earlier with the monoprint, how you get that effect of the brush strokes and everything like that, was, you know, turning the pages, you you got that feel of a sense of flow and speed through the project. Um, So that was quite 
purposeful for you? Yeah, I mean, I really wanted to produce something um, quite light mm-hmm. and, um, yeah, that uh, that did have a kind of ephemeral, um, just one take feeling. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. and it's, to me it comes across as being like really, um, it's, well, it's so vibrant and light and colourful and, and almost joyous, even though you can just about feel the sensation of tiredness in <laughs> 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 Lily's words. Uh, yeah. About having a, having the baby, um, and the thematic elements of it. Um, so it sounds like you had a, a little bit of guidance in general uh, for that. But so, did you come to these themes together? Uh, one of the ones comes to mind, and which really resonated for me was the coffee. Yeah, <laughs> like the <cup>. coffee. <laughs> As someone um, whose life revolves on caffeine, <laughs> of some form of description, did you come up with those themes together? Um, yeah, well, I think the back and forth of the writing and the um, we just over time, sorry, the phone um, generated the motifs, um, and they kept on being added to. But yeah, the cup was quite central from the beginning, I think. And I think most of them are kind of daily, you know, like time markers. There's the sun and yeah, the moon yeah. and bananas. Yeah, bana- <laughs> bananas. That, bananas had been in my work before, so yeah, that, that definitely comes from me. But Lenny did take that one on, so yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so if some of these pictures had already, you had already had some of these pictures from your initial workings with Bill Manhire, um, and some of these came across into this volume of work, mm. how did that affect, um, like for example, or, or inform Lindley's poems to those pictures and the other pages? Did you feel that they were there, I'm going to use them, or did they use them as a platform? Um, well, I, you know, like I made hundreds of these prints <laughs> and um, our process was mainly that Lindley would, Lindley would come and choose, you know, from a pile. Okay. Yep. Yeah, and take them away. And... Um, Initially, she responded to um, the visual things in the in the work, mm-hmm. and then you know, I think then it became you know moving from there into the everyday or you know out mm-hmm. into the world, mm-hmm. and um, and then you know and then I would she would give me a bunch of poems and I would sort of think about them and make some more prints and, yeah. <laughs> so uh, well, it sounds like it was really advantageous for you then to both be in the same town. Absolutely it was, yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. It made it much easier, yeah. So many meetings over those said cups of coffee. Feet, yes, yep, had some cake, and yep. <laughs> well, all creativity involves food and, and, and caffeine, <laughs> we, all, we all know this. So stylistically-wise, um, these, these pictures are very vibrant, and as you said, you can see the brush strokes in them and everything like that. Is that... A style you adopted just for this project, or is that your style in general? Um, they are more fast. They are faster and more brushy than my usual paintings. But um, I, you know, now of course the the prints are really making their way into the more worked up paintings. Mm. So I've, yeah, I've learned some things from them. Okay, so you've done used these prints as a stepping stone yeah, to yeah. to further work. Yeah, Tell no, us a bit was, more about it that. It was helpful mm. for me because I don't I don't have much of a drawing process mm. usually, and I I think of them as drawing. Mm. 
Whereas, yeah. yeah, which is intriguing, you know, because you know, to a non-artist, is think, oh, you know, a print seems a very final thing, but for you, this has been the stepping stone onto something else. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, what do you think then of the? You know, I'm, I'm sitting here, I'm holding the book, and it's a beautiful. It's a hardcover book with a one of those um, very cool bookmarks in it. What do you think of the book as an object? Now that you've you've seen it out there like this. Um, Oh, yeah, no, it's great to have. Um, Of course, you know, publishing, very uh, long arc. (laughs) So it took several years. And, you know, I was, I think I was sort of over looking at the work by the time I, yeah. So you did (laughs) the whole love hate thing. (laughs) Um, But it's really nice to have other people's response Mm. from the other end. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and um, you, you know it's a series so some things were um, already decided for us like the format and yeah. the number of pages and uh, yeah. so the book design in general was yes. keeping was keeping it aligned keeping with the series yeah. so for you you know you've enjoyed this collaboration with Lindley um, on this as an artist looking to you know potential collaborations with with other forms of art you know what would be like your dream collaboration to do next or or is this scarred you for life and you just want to go back to working by yourself um no I don't know I mean I quite like collaborating actually Mm. um uh you know like I especially liked this kind of scenario where I I was working beside somebody Mm. rather than uh having to do something that wasn't was dictated too much yeah um but yeah god i'd love to do anything really like film i don't know yes yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah art and film that could be amazing <laughs> music cut me up yeah yep did, did you hear that anyone out there who wants a collaboration <laughs> <laughs> so um what's next for you then project wise you know you, you just talked about doing some more paintings or based off this um, yeah, I've got a show, well, actually, I think it's just ended in Wellington, so that was, um, I showed some of the mono, mono prints and then some more worked up paintings, mm. so yeah, that was, that kind of bounced off this book. Um, and I'm sort of just getting started again uh, into the next thing, but yeah, can't tell you much about that yet. <laughs> oh, secret, secret, secrets. Yeah. <laughs> hey, that's great. Um, well, thank you so much, Darcy, for coming on and talking with me about Bordering on Miraculous, which is um, by Lindley Edmeads and Saskia Leek. And all the very best with your um, future works from this. Thank you very much. Right, we're going to take a short music break. We'll be back soon. Wait till you're announced. We've not yet lost all our graces. The hounds will stay in chains. Look upon your greatness and she'll send the call out, 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 send We talk. 
didn't I tell you everything's fine? There's a good and bad or somewhere in between. Often I feel like we're all navigating blind. Could we get a change of pace to set the scene? We could stay another day in this confusion. Let it permeate us till we can't move on. And what
university bookshop is evil because it tempts me so with its otherworldly, picture-perfect, just-smell-those-books-and-breathe-atmosphere with its staff who entice me with, Ooh, look, have you read this? Or have you seen that? And we know you need this. With its cruelly situated right at the front so you trip over at New Zealand new releases table. And worst of all, worst of all, with the irresistible treasures in Book Lover's Corner, the university bookshop is evil. You have been warned. Welcome back. You're listening to Otago Access Radio and right on with Vanda Simon, which is the show of the Otago Southland branch of the New Zealand Society of Authors and it's sponsored by that great team at the University Bookshop. Robert Sullivan is an Omaru-based award-winning poet, editor and teacher. He's of Napui and Kaitahu and also Irish descent. Now his poetry collections include the best-selling Star Walker and he's also written a graphic novel, a prize-winning book of Māori legends for children. He's edited anthologies of Polynesian and Māori poetry and had his poem Kawereo Voices carry published um, published as a bronze sculpture in front of the Auckland City Library. Sorry, I just think that's so cool, having a poem as a sculpture. I had to mention that. And he has recently published a new poetry collection, Tunui Comet. Kia ora, Robert. Welcome to the show. Kia ora, Vanda. Thanks for having me. Now, in the past, you know, we have often talked about other people's writing, so it's lovely on this occasion to have opportunity just to talk about yours. And I'd like to start by asking about when did you first connect to poetry and what drew you to it? Um, I had a wonderful standard for primary school teacher, Mrs. Nayia, and um, she um, just had a way with story time, things like that. And then she got our class to um, do cloud poems. So we all went outside and looked up at the sky. We all wrote about what we saw. But I was the only one in class who saw an alligator floating across the sky. (laughs) And then she got us to um, stuff it um, like paper mache clouds hang it from the ceiling and I felt so proud I thought right I'm a poet and I never forgot that and I often talk about that memory because I actually didn't start writing seriously for about 10 years after that um, at stage one uni uh, when we encountered real live poets like Hone Tufari who came into our lecture um, and other writers and I kind of realized that um, I had something similar but I was in a a different generation from Honey, of course, and I thought that, um, hey, I, I really can do this. I, I have a poem that, you know, hung from the classroom ceiling and stuff like that, you know? Uh, yeah, it was really that kind of simple connection for me. And never underestimate that wonderful moment of what a good teacher can do. You know, and so many yes. people are inspired by a teacher or someone who just takes that time to allow someone to explore. That's a wonderful, I love the idea of it hanging from the ceiling. (laughs) (laughs) So, you know, you continued on and and, and then basically written poetry all of your adult life. So how does poetry help you to interpret and express life in ways that perhaps other forms of writing or art can't? Well, I'm, I'm quite a shy person in person, I have to say. And so for me, um, Poetry has a, a, a kind of a basic communicative function, so I really do get to communicate my feelings through my poems. <clears throat> Excuse me. Um, um, but I also have some quite grandiose ideas about poetry, because uh, I've read a lot about you know, what makes a good poem. 
And I, I was quite fascinated by Ezra Pound's ideas about poetry, about, you know, only emotion endures and make it new. I think it's that newness of a poem or a work of art um, that makes it worth considering, uh, you know, a fresh take on an old theme, because everything's been said before, of course. So I think newness is um, essential to poetry. I might be veering off your question, Vanda, um, but, you know, I also love what Joy Harjo says about poetry, that it's an electrical force field that is love. And, and I really do buy into the idea of the force, you know, the modi or the ho, and the kind of gift of the ho, um, which comes, of course, from uh, Matauranga Māori. So when I was first struggling with writing poetry back in year one at uni, which is many decades ago, um, I had this visualization of the Modi as literally a force field above my head and I could just reach up and I was writing a poem and grab it and I'd be taking a bit of that force field, transferring it to the page um, and then later on, you know, bringing it out my mouth when I read the poetry, you know, because breath is so important. So, you know, the ha, you know, the breath, the Modi, the life force, um, you know, all that stuff contributes. And when I think about someone like Tufadi's work, he's always got some form of liquid in his poetry. So I did my PhD partly on his work. And I think in all of his oeuvre, there's only about five poems without liquid. So he was a water poet. And he, um, of course, understood the importance of water and life. So for you then, you know, following on from what you observed in Tufari's poetry, is there a particular element that you associate with your work? Well, I'm very much a lyric poet. I strongly believe that um, there has to be a person in each poem or a persona. Um, it's not necessarily me. When I was a lot younger, it was me. Um, <laughs> there was very little filtering going on, so I was terribly earnest. Um, so a lot of filters, a lot of veils, a lot of voices now in my later work. Um, and it's partly not to exhaust myself. You know, because I, I think if you wear it on your sleeve all the time and, and you're up there doing a reading of some sort um, and it's really you, you know what I mean? Mm. You know, it can take a lot out of you to, to be that kind of writer. And I'm a little bit older now, um, so I can't maintain that kind of energy. Um, but I, I love the idea of being a human being <laughs> in the poetry. And I think that's one of the elements that I really loved about um, reading and enjoying this collection was how you wrote to note the importance of some of the simple things of being a human being um, and yet the significance in them, you know, like mowing the lawns or you know, <laughs> doing a card to an 80-year-old. So you know, how has poetry enriched your life in this regard, enjoying the simplest? Gosh, um... Well, yeah, I guess it has enriched my life. Um, so I must admit, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm a modern kind of guy and a lot goes by me every day and I do need reflection time <laughs> to actually soak up what happened to me during the day and sometimes I don't get that so I don't always sleep very well. Um, but normally, you know, at the end of the day, I'm, I'm reflecting in some way and then I can have a good night's sleep. And I'm not saying that's what poetry does, but it's something similar in that, um, you know, the ripples of existence get looked at and they get heard in a way that, um, you know, the larger events in life um, always get heard, you know. 
it's those little things like you're saying. Um, yeah, I, yeah, I like um, Pablo Neruda's work. He works on scales, so he'll talk about the history of the world, but then he'll talk about you know right down to snail level. And Horne Tufadi can do that too. He's written this marvelous poem about a Cody snail. But he's actually talking about the shell and not the snail that's gone. So it's the ghost of the snail. And, and of course, there's the bigger message, and it's the Cody tree that the snail depended on, which is also gone, you know? So you can play with scale and say a lot of stuff um, using it. Which ties in beautifully uh, to the other elements of this collection and that, you know, you do examine bigger issues, you know, decolonisation, tertiary. Um, so how does poetry free you to explore your personal take on that? Well, I've got a poet's licence, eh? So, you know, and I wave it around. It's like being a police investigator or something, you know. Tugger to whenua, what's going on here, make way kind of thing. And that's exactly what I'm doing. I'm, so how on earth are we in this um, neo-colonial so-called decolonial situation, you know? And so I'm constantly negotiating life and sharing some of that in the poetry. Um, like there was this racist incident where I'd love to have been a superhero. So I was there, you know, a decolonization superhero. But I didn't do anything at the time. And I drove off in a half. Um, and then I almost did a U-turn to go back and talk to the chap who was a little bit racist. But in the end, I just ended up looking at clouds and the sky on my drive up to Omarama. And, um, yeah, let it go. But I still stuck it in a poem, you know. Yeah. And, and, and in that poem, you know, about the rock art, you could feel, you could actually, like, feel the vibe coming off the page of what you were, what you were feeling. Yeah, I was quite outraged. I, was, I, was, I guess because I was briefly not in control of my feelings, I was afraid of what I was going to say to the guy. And I, I think part of that fear translated into flight, not fight. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I flew off instead of flew in like a superhero. The mild-mannered poet. <laughs> <laughs> now, language, of course, is one of the wonderful features in this collection. You know, you flow from English into te reo Māori. What does language to you personally bring to your work? Um, well, I think te reo Māori brings nuance. You know, there are just terms that you can't translate. Like even, you know, that idea of life force and Modi, because actually that term Modi has a twin, the, the word ho, and without the presence of ho, you're not really encapsulating the creative energies that goes into that notion of life force. Um, and the language is full of that sort of stuff. There's so many gaps in translation. Um, from Māori into English, and yet, you know, being a Māori person in Aotearoa, you know, Aotearoa, New Zealand, um, you know, just think about all the multiple bicultural translations we negotiate every day, and think of all of the mistranslations that we live with, like like the term Aotearoa and the misunderstandings mm. and the dreams also attached to that very name, you know, tons of stuff. So language is everything, that's how we mediate our, our lives. Um, so it's full of nuance and it's full of big stuff too, you know? Because as, as someone who you know, predominantly you know, speaks English as my first language, I think, oh, yeah, sure, I can express everything I want to in English. But then, like you say, there are things, that are, particularly in the realms of spirituality, that we, we're so literal 
in, yeah. in our language. So it must be wonderfully enriching to be able to you know, use te reo in that way. Yeah, and, I, and of course I've, I've struggled with it, you know, like I'm not a native speaker, so I started learning it at university. And I'm okay, I'm an okay speaker now, and I do teach at, at Waitaki Boys High School, and that's kind of neat. Um, but I, I know enough to know that there are just untranslated things, you know, te wahingaro, these mysterious things that only the language can carry to do a Māori and not the English language. And so, um, yeah, it's been an interesting journey, this little book, you know, translating, um, well, having, you know, occasional poems where I'm writing in English and suddenly just switch to Māori and I just end the poem in Māori and not translate. And there's a kind of freedom in doing that and, and a trust too that the reader will understand why. Mm. Uh, yeah, I don't feel like I need to explain myself anymore like I used to. Yeah, which is wonderful. But And as a reader, it is precisely that, you know, the, the words are going in English and then they suddenly swap into te reo, which is beautiful and lyrical in its own right as reading the words on the page, let alone hearing them out loud. But you, as a reader, I sort of like understood, okay, we're moving into the realm of something special that English can't quite grasp. And it, and it didn't matter because it was all part of that poem. And also, um, you know, there were some poems that are just entirely in Māori. Yes. Yeah, that's kind of neat. Like the one, the second to last poem, it's quite a lengthy poem. Um, but my secret is I spent about 20, 25 years translating that one because it came out and like my second book, it's called Karaki, and I wrote it for Bruce Stewart back in the day. And it's about a Cherokee prayer circle that Bruce would wake us up with at the Hui for the first Māori writers gathering. Um, and we pass a bowl of sacred water around with petals on it and give our breath to the four directions. Um, so it's quite a spiritual experience. And I just felt that that was the one I wanted to translate. So I had a bit of help. And like I said, it took decades um you know i'm quite happy with it there'll still be errors i'm sure you know it's not going to be perfect um but what poem is perfect anyway you know i'm always revising my stuff now poetry is of course often a performance art and a spoken art um and you mentioned earlier that you know you're quite a shy person so when you write do you write for the printed page or the spoken word how does that work for you i believe in the music of poetry and i also think that every poet um, with their salt has their own voice i think any writer has their own voice too you know that um, um so i i write to be heard so i like to think that every poem i've ever written in some way can can be read out loud of course, I have my favourites that I read out loud because um, I know that an audience would engage better with them. Um, but essentially, even if I'm not saying the poetry out loud as I'm writing, I have a voice in my head that knows how it will sound. Uh, so it's incredibly important. And then the performative side, um, I'm not a great performer. I, I mean, there's some wonderful performance parts I've, I've been lucky enough to read with, like David Eagleton. <laughs> Um, or Shane Coyzan, um, who are known, um, you know, for the language beyond the voice, you know, the body language and um, style and swag and all the stuff that makes a great performance. Um, so I must admit I'm not like that, but I do use my voice in a performative kind of way, I think. Um, 
So I'm not so great on the body as part of my performance. But I, I do believe that the voice carries a lot. I always love that. Um, it's a really interesting as a reader hearing a poet perform and getting the, the, the nuances that you didn't pick up or the humour that you didn't pick up. Yeah, true. Now, this is your first poetry collection for quite some time. So how do you know or how do you, do you know when you have enough material that you've got the right works, the themes have said enough about what you want to say? Well, it's partly a mystery. I mean, I do believe in the mystery of poetry. Um, and I know I'm a creative writing teacher and, you know, that you, you can teach the art of creative writing. I do believe in that. But you still have to have a spark somewhere. And I think the spark was telling me now it's time. Um, so I wrote this little sequence within the collection called Te Tahuhu Nui. And that's about the whakapapa lines of my mum's people at Karatu. And I, I just felt that it would be ready after I wrote that sequence. Um, and I was also lucky to get an invite to Fitianga to, um, you know, the waka celebration, you know, of the endeavour and of Kupi's arrival as well. Um, and that also felt like a, a key component of the book. So a lot of the other poetry has been written much earlier, some very recently. But it was those two sequences that I felt would help a collection cohere. And the title is Tūnui, or Comet, which is the last poem printed in the sequence of that collection. So what was the significance for you of actually choosing that as the title? Yeah, um, so it's based off a vision of my tūpuna papahuri here. He was the first Māori prophet um, after, um, I guess they call it the contact period, but that's kind of Eurocentric. Um, but anyway, after um, uh, non-Māori and, and Māori encountered each other, in, in the 18th century, um, he founded um, his, um, his very significant Nakahi movement. And the Nakahi are a religious movement whose symbol is the serpent. And it's the same serpent as on Moses' staff in Genesis. So I've read some of his archive, lots of esoteric information in there, um, including this idea of the comet. And I see it as a symbol of being Ngāpuhi, so that was the vision, um, and he did, well, miraculous things happened with this particular tūpuna, like after he passed away, his headstone turned in the other direction. Um, there's another poet, Kendrick Smithyman, who wrote a collection, Te Atua Wera. it's about my tūpuna, Papahuri here, and I've always had a bit of the gripe <laughs> that with Kendrick, because he wrote it and then he passed away, so I could never discuss it with him. He was one of my tutors up at Auckland University. Um, I thought, mm, you took some of my family stories, Kendrick, you know. And he actually spoke to part of my family about our tūpuna, but not the whole family. Um, and I know my mother was very upset about it too. So um, this idea of the comet is sort of a bright flash across the sky, but also, I, I guess, a, a kind of a marker for me of being assertive about my family stories. So two nui can mean comet, but it can also mean a great stand. So I'm making a mark in terms of my tūpuna stories. Lovely. Now, you work at a high school, you know, with young students. Yes. So, you know, what message would you give to 
young budding poets, you know, particularly Maori or Pacific poets, to, to encourage them. Say your truth. Be brave about who you are and just say it. Say it, say it, say it. Uh, make it new. It has to be new. Um, but what you have to say because you're Maori or have um, a Pacific heritage, it will be new to New Zealand audiences. So anything you say is going to be new in New Zealand literature. Just say it. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much, Robert, for coming on the show today and talking about Tūnui Comet. And yeah, all the very best with this collection. Oh, kia ora, Vanda. Thank you yeah. so much. Well, that is our show for this month. And thank you for listening in. And also thank you to my guest, Saskia Leek, talking about her collaborative book with Lindley Edmeads, Bordering on Miraculous, and Robert Sullivan talking about Tunui Comet. So join us again next month for another dive into that wonderful world of books. But until then, enjoy lots of great reading. The University Bookshop is evil because it tempts me so with its otherworldly, picture-perfect, just-smell-those-books-and-breathe-atmosphere with its staff who entice me with Oh look, have you read this? Or have you seen that? And we know you need this. With its cruelly situated right at the front so you trip over at New Zealand new releases table. And worst of all, worst of all, with the irresistible treasures in Book Lovers Corner, the University Bookshop is evil. You have been warned. This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air.